As we come now before God's word, would you turn in your Bibles for the final time now to the book of Esther in chapter 9. That's Esther in chapter 9. This is our last week in the book of Esther. Uh, We'll read through the end of the book, so that means we'll read all of chapter 10, which if you look is very short. Uh, Chapter 10 is only three verses, so that's no trouble for us, but chapter 9 is the longest chapter in, in Esther, so that would take me half the sermon just to read it all, so I'll have to start in the middle and read through and then summarize what came before. But we'll begin in Esther chapter 9. And before, before I read here, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, would you help us to see your word this way as something that we can really rely upon, a rock for us to stand on, because it is your word. Lord, would you guide our understanding now? Would you turn our hearts to you? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read now in Esther chapter 9. I'll begin in verse 20. I'll begin again in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, son of Hamedatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and because of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days, according to what was written, and at the appointed appointed time every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." 
Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews and to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is... God's word. So just briefly, what had happened before this, you'll remember in chapter 8, which we talked about last week, Esther and Mordecai bind together to issue a counter-decree against the decree of destruction that had been sent out for the Jews. Uh, So now the Jews have the power and the authority and the resources to defend themselves against their enemies on this day that is set for their destruction. So then in chapter 9, the section that we didn't read, you can go back and read it if you wish. In chapter 9, the day of the decree arrives. And the enemies of the Jews attack them all over Persia, in Susa, the the hub city, and then in all the rural areas as well. And verse 1 says uh, there's a reversal, that the Jews gained mastery over them. Now, gained mastery is kind of a nice way, a, a tidy way of saying what really occurred, which is that many were killed in war. Many of the enemies of the Jews So over this two-day period, not just one, now it's two days, uh, more than 75,000 people, the enemies of the Jews, uh, were killed. These are the ones that had initiated attacks against the Jews on that day as the Jews defended themselves. And this great number of those who died, the 75,000, includes Haman's Sons, There's ten of them, and I'm glad we didn't read it because it's tough to pronounce all their names. Uh, We don't know uh, why exactly them. Perhaps they still wanted to get revenge for their dad, Haman. Uh, But at any rate, they also, as enemies of the Jews, were, were killed by the Jews and hanged publicly just as Haman had been hanged. And even though the counter-decree, which was in support of the Jews, uh, allowed them not only to fight for their freedom, to secure themselves, this counter-decree allowed the Jews to plunder their enemies when they attacked them. The Jews did not do that. They did not take advantage of this right to plunder. Um, 
The only thing that the Jews gained on that day was to reclaim their own freedom and security. So in the midst of this day of war, which is really what happened, uh, the Jews did gain their freedom, but it was very messy. Now to be clear, none of this in Esther is actually uh, speaking directly to us. It's not necessarily for or against uh, modern-day war or defense. This is not telling us what we are supposed to do. It's just a report of what occurred. And then after this day, what became two days of war, when the two-day decree was over, the Jews feasted. Again, we talked about that last week, that that was part of their celebration of the Lord's deliverance, that they feasted. So then, the section that we read is that Mordecai commands them to keep this feast year after year. In other words, uh, bring it back up. We're creating a holiday. He says, do it regularly. I want you every year to have a big feast. Every year, I want you to send food to each other. Every year, I want you to give gifts to the poor as a reminder of this. And this two-day holiday, they called Purim. It was recorded. It was written down, sent to all the letters, and, and, and it was to be sent out for future generations. A good summary of how this played out is in verse 28. I'll read it again. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan and province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. These things are to be commemorated so that the memory of what occurred will not die. That's our theme for this week, the theme of commemoration. It's one of the major purposes, and perhaps even the main purpose of Esther, is to record what happened in Purim and how they got there, and that the people were to remember it for generations to come. And even though what happens here in Esther uh, really occurred in a real place in Persia at a real time in the 5th century BC. Now, 2,500 years later, Purim is still celebrated. Um, it happened uh, this year. The end of Purim happened uh, at the very beginning of this month, in fact. Uh, that Purim occurred, especially in Jewish circles. Some now call uh, this holiday of Purim the Jewish Halloween. Uh, it's not quite a fitting description of what it is to call Purim Jewish Halloween. The reason why some people call it that is because it's traditional now, as, as modern people celebrate Purim, to dress up in costume. You know, we've got Iron Man and clowns just like Halloween does. And the reason some say that they dress up to celebrate Purim is because Esther had hidden her identity as a Jew and so the costume mimics that. Or uh, that God's work in the book of Esther is hidden or masked. 
And so, so many then dress up to symbolize that. Whatever the reason, uh, people often dress up to celebrate Purim. They, they gather together and they read the whole book of Esther in full from beginning to end. Uh, you know, the, oh, to have time to do that. But they read the, the book in full, and then kids and everybody involved, uh, it's, it's a fun experience. They don't just read and listen. Uh, many people are holding what they call groggers. It's this little uh, noisemaker toy that they rattle around every time Haman's name is mentioned in the book. And the reason for that is to, to drown out the memory of Haman's name. And when Mordecai's name is mentioned, oftentimes they cheer. And when Haman's name is mentioned, they boo and hiss and rattle the groggers. And after they read it, they eat together, and, and they feast, and they send packages of food to family, and they give gifts to charity. That's what modern-day Purim still looks like. Now, some of those things uh, come directly from the book of Esther. Some of those things are more traditional. But you see the point there, that they're trying to commemorate what had occurred in the days of Esther. So now as we wrap up our time with the book of Esther, I want to just give us four things, four observations. There's more than that, I'm sure, but four things uh, that we can notice about commemoration, specifically this commemoration, that will be helpful to us. Four things. The first is that this commemoration is specific. The commemoration is specific. So it's not just celebrating any day. It's celebrating these days, says Mordecai. Remember these particular days. Even the day of Purim is supposed to be set on the exact same day as the original decree. So in other words, it's not just about God's general faithfulness to his people, although that's also true. It's about God's specific occasion of faithfulness to his people. That God was faithful in this way at this time. And they know it because they saw it. They witnessed it on this occasion. In other words, Mordecai, by commanding this commemoration, is saying to the people, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember Haman and his decree and the poor or the lot or the dice that were cast to set your destruction. I want you to remember that Haman tried to hang me, but the Lord reversed it and hang it. Haman was hung instead. I want you to remember the day of destruction and that you were doomed. And yet because of the Lord's providence, because of the Lord's good favor, 75,000 of your enemies were killed instead. And I want you to remember what all of that felt like. The commemoration here is specific. Uh, specific commemorations are important in the whole of the scriptures. Uh, there's a number of times when the Lord himself commands his people 
to commemorate specific events. So one example is after the Jews, God's people, are brought out of Exodus, and they're being brought into the promised land. I won't tell all the story, but you know that uh, they don't go in, and they, uh, they get scared, and so the Lord sends them to wander around in the desert for 40 years uh, because of their disobedience. And then finally, the, after 40 years, the Lord does bring them into the promised land. And in order to get there, they have to cross the Jordan River. And the Lord parts the Jordan River just as he had parted the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt. This is what he says in Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Here's now about the occasion when they first come into the Promised Land. Joshua 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each, man, each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So here's what happened there. As they cross over this cutoff uh, place so they could pass by on dry ground through the river, uh, there were 12 men, one from each tribe. They were supposed to take up 12 stones, not just from anywhere, but from the middle of the river where water had once been. So they were to take out these stones before the river then closed up and it carried on again. And then they were to stack them up in the middle of the place that they camped that night so that that time would be commemorated forever. There's roaring up there uh, from my child. She's commemorating it. Uh, so uh, we, you can almost picture kids. It's actually a great place for that. You can picture kids later, years later, going down to this section, playing around in the river, kicking up rocks and, and, and playing. And then they see the stack, the pile of 12 very large stones, and, and, and they say, Papa, why are those stones there? And, and Grandpa says, come here. Let me tell you a story. This really happened. Those stones came from the middle of that river on the day when the Lord brought us into this place as our new home. Both of these things the stones from the book of Joshua and the holiday of Purim from the book of Esther are to commemorate 
specific occasions of the Lord's work so that it will encourage us to trust the future of the Lord's work. So there's the first thing. This commemoration is to be specific. The second thing is that the commemoration is communal. There's lots of people together. You hear it uh, in Esther. It's mentioned several times over that all of God's people are together for this. It's for all generation, that every clan, every province, every city was to gather together, even the non-Jews who had now become part of the Jews. They're to gather together to commemorate the Lord together. And I know culturally for us now, it's it can be easy or, or, or tempting to kind of grow inward, to, to grow more insular. I have my house and my schedule, even as a Christian, that, that I do my quiet time with my Bible and pr- say my prayers. And those things are good. I, I hope that you do have those things as parts of Rhythms of Life, your prayers, your reading of the Bible, but... If those things are the only expression of our worship, we will drift into an empty and detached spirituality that we think we can become church by ourselves. You know, Jesus calls his people his his body that we're one body together, that we actually need each other, that I need you and you need me. We're to be united together in him. And these communal commemorations are some of the sinews that hold muscle and bone together in the body of Jesus. Communal celebration then helps to increase the glory of God and and to increase our love for God. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, the writer says this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer says, don't don't give up encouraging each other. And the way that that happens is by gathering together, by meeting together to worship the Lord together. That's part of our communal commemoration. So that's number two. We've got this commemoration is specific and communal. Now here's the third one. This commemoration in Esther is complex. It's complex. And by that I mean they are to remember all of what occurred. The good and the hard, not just the good. In fact, to remember the good, they have to remember 
the hard. So the holiday of Purim uh, was supposed to celebrate their turning from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. So the emphasis of the holiday was on, was on celebration. It's a feast, after all. And it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a happy time, a glad time. But part of this gladness is to remember what had happened to them. To remember the days of fasting and lament to remember the days when they were on the edge of desperation and hopelessness, to remember their days when they are weeping in sackcloth and ashes, to commemorate the whole of it in all of its complexities. Now, having said that, If we think about that in our own lives, some might say, Nathan, I have seen some very bad things in my life. I've seen some really tough days, and I don't want to go back there ever, even in my own mind. And I understand that. This is not easy. Sometimes there's, there's even trauma in our lives that are difficult to sift through. Uh, how, how to address this, of course, requires uh, wisdom and the help of the community and the body of Jesus. I know it's not easy, but on the whole, we don't want to whitewash our commemorations, that we remember only the good. We actually need it in all of its complexity to see the good and the hard. And in the end, this actually will help to increase our joy in God. So one easy example actually has to do with today, particularly. Today is is Palm Sunday. It's the the beginning of what some people call the Holy Week. Uh, Holy in the sense that the week is, is set apart for specific uh, things, to remember the events that happened in the life of our Lord Jesus. Uh, This was the week in which we remember uh, his death and resurrection. And so the beginning of this week on on the Sunday is is Palm Sunday, now we call it. And there's lots of, of crying out and kids are waving around palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We celebrate this King of Israel, Jesus. That's the beginning of Holy Week. And the end of Holy Week, you know, is next Sunday. That's Easter. And during Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that he's victorious over sin and death and the grave. Hallelujah. Yay. uh, Yay, Jesus. (laughs) But in the middle of Holy Week is what we call Maundy Thursday the very somber day on the night that Jesus was betrayed and the day we call Good Friday, which is a dark day in which the author of life is killed. That's a tough sandwich to swallow. That in the middle of it, Jesus on the cross becomes sin for all who believe. That in the middle, Jesus 
suffers a gruesome, brutal death of crucifixion. In the middle, the wrath of God upon sin is poured out on Jesus. And then Jesus dies for three days then, seeming to leave the disciples alone and lost. That's some hard stuff. And yet we know that the whole of Holy Week is an expression of the Lord's love, that he does this to save, and that the whole of the commemoration, the complexity of the entirety of it, actually serves to increase our joy in the end. These events around Easter are similar to the way we remember the events of Purim that happened in Esther. It's since the, the need to commemorate all the complexities that as we remember the Lord's work and the hard things in the day he died and was buried, we also remember the Lord's work and the good things in which the tomb is empty and death now has been reclaimed. There's the third thing for us, then. Commemoration is to be complex. Here's the fourth one, then. The last one here for us. In the book of Esther, we see commemoration as peaceful. Commemoration is peaceful here. And some of the common words, then, at the end... uh, Uh, I think my Bible translates it at one point. Yeah, verse 22, the Jews got relief, which to me sounds like a commercial about indigestion, but uh, you get the idea that they received uh, rest from this. In fact, one of the last words in the whole book of Esther is he, this is a reference to Mordecai, the Jew, sought welfare for the people and spoke peace to them. The Hebrew there is shalom, Maybe it translates in your Bible, he spoke well-being or wellness or welfare to them. The idea of shalom includes uh, wholeness, to be made complete. So that's how the book ends. After this day of battle, a day of war against their enemies, the Jews now commemorate this with the holiday of peace. So that brings a final question then for us. As we look at the whole of the book of Esther, now as we read this section at the end, we wonder, how did we get here? How did we end with with peace? Because the book of Esther, if you've been here with us over these 10 weeks, is a bit of a roller coaster ride. There's not a moment of real peace in the entire book. No lasting peace. The whole account before this is just up and down and all over the place. We've seen King Ahasuerus, who is erratic in his abuse of power. We've seen Esther often treated like like a pawn on a chessboard, just sort of moved around wherever it's convenient. We've seen Haman's narcissism as he tries to take down an entire generation of people. And we see Mordecai working from outside of the king's gate without any real power or authority. And over the whole thing, 
dangles this decree of destruction over the heads of the Jews, just hanging there by a fine thread. Yet in the end, there's peace. How? It's not because Esther is so brave, although at times she was. There's not peace because Mordecai is so faithful, although at times he was. And it's not because the Jews were so unified, although at times they were. It doesn't take a scholar to really see how we arrive at peace at the end. In fact, if you read this to kids, they often see it right away. You can imagine Esther in later years after this. This is just my imagination. But you can imagine great-grandma Esther. Now, uh, the yearly celebration of Purim has come around again. And so everyone gathers at her house. And they sit and read the book now that bears her name. So she scoots in all the kids and the great-grandkids, and, and the kids are sitting back just kind of smiling and watching. And they read the whole book from, from in, beginning to end. And at the end, great-grandma Esther says, Now, kids, how did our people have peace? And they might say, well, it's because because God is strong. Oh, it's because God's bigger. Oh, it's because God is with us. And she said, yes. Ah, oh, you got it. You're really seeing what this is about. We can't, we can't miss the work of God in the book of Esther. Even though, if you remember clear back in chapter 1, we talked about the fact that God is nowhere, not once, directly mentioned in the book of Esther. Nowhere does God speak, not even a whisper. During this season, he is entirely silent, and yet God is still powerfully at work to bring peace on earth to his people even when it seems peace is not humanly possible. The book of Esther sets us up to commemorate Purim, but at its core, it's really a commemoration or a remembrance of, of God, of who he is of how he works, and we, we, we need this sort of commemoration that especially in the midst of difficult life circumstances, we'd see a glimpse of God's wisdom, of God's purposes, of God's muscle. We want our hearts and our minds to be guided by these things, to really be turned to the Lord in remembrance of him. I hope and pray that for me and for all of us that that's especially true this week. That during this week now as we're moving from Esther 
to Easter, that we would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, that our commemoration of Jesus would be specific in what he had specifically done, that it would be communal, that we do together, that it would be complex in all of its good and hard parts, and that it would end with peace for us. As we're commemorating Jesus in the work that he has finished for us in a sacrifice to save sinners. Because you know and remember that on the night that he died, he sat with his disciples and commanded them to remember that he took bread and he took a cup and he said, this is my body and my blood which is given for you. And as you eat and drink of it, do this in remembrance or commemoration of me. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, thank you for your great gifts to us. Would you help us to turn our minds and hearts to you, to remember who you really are, how you really work, what you really do. Guide us as we reflect upon Esther and now as we move toward Easter in your death and resurrection. Help us to fix our eyes on you, our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.